five, four, three, two, one. And uh, this is the beginning of the show. Jess Nolan, welcome. Is that typically what you go by, Jess? Mm-hmm. Yeah. A couple people call me Jessica. Okay. That's my full name. Gotcha. But I've been Jess since probably eight years old. Okay. Mm-hmm. Did you pick that nickname or did somebody pick that nickname for you? Um, so I have two brothers and I grew up in a neighborhood with mostly boys and I was Jesse for a while mm-hmm. just cause I was running around with the boys <laughs> and then, uh, then it just got shortened to Jess. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, um, was kind of getting my notes together today and for some reason I had in my mind Maine, which is wrong because you're from New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I knew it was from somewhere up North. Uh, I like Maine. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty. What parts of Maine have you been to? Uh, Portland and then just like hiking up in the mountains. I don't know. I went when I was really young with my parents and I remember it just being yeah beautiful. I'd imagine this would be a really good season to go. I feel like Maine probably has really nice falls. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got an album out. and I think it came out, was it in August? Mm-hmm. Okay, and it's called From Blue to Gold. Mm-hmm. Um. I'm always interested in how these things come together uh, from start to finish. Um, And I've been spending quite a bit of time with this album over the past few days. Um, So congratulations. Um, You've done a spectacular job on this. Let me start by saying that. Thanks. Um, The name From Blue to Gold, I feel like you've captured the feeling because it certainly is a listener anyway. It sounds like you kind of were, you know, maybe kind of sad and then we're able to come into something that's very hopeful and optimistic, which I think is kind of a way to encompass the way that this record really feels. Right. Um, is it like, is it that on the nose? Like, am I reading into the name too much or is that basically, no, that's it. Yeah. Which makes me so happy that it came across and I didn't have to tell you, you just got it. I think you've done a really good job of capturing a feeling. Um, it's one of those things where I listen to it and I feel like I just get it. You see Mm. what I'm saying? Mm. Um, we're going to get into, um, some of my favorite tracks, but I kind of want to rewind a little bit and let's give everybody an opportunity to kind of get to know you. Um, how long have you been in Nashville? Five and a half years. Five and a half years. Mm -hmm. And you were at, at Frost School of Music at Miami. University of Miami. University of Miami Mm -hmm. before that. Okay, Mm -hmm. cool. Um, well, obviously before you go to school for songwriting, you Mm -hmm. had to have been playing music pretty long, right? Yeah. So I started playing piano probably around seven or eight. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I was always singing. Like, as a little girl, I just loved, like, I was a very outgoing little girl. So I always had a little microphone, and I would be singing around the house, making up songs. Um, My grandmother really pushed me towards the arts. She was a painter. And, um, yeah, she always had opera on at the house. And she was like, you should be an opera singer. You know, she just would, like, plant these little seeds of, like, you can do this if you want to. Um, and then I was in choir and I was in the musicals for a while. I thought I wanted to go to Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also super into journaling and poetry from probably around middle school is when I started like documenting a lot of thoughts and feelings and, you know, around the same time, everyone starts, uh, feeling a lot of things and yeah, they, the piano lessons sort of started to merge with the writing Um, and then I remember I had a classical piano teacher at the time and 
I wanted to play Alicia Keys. I like brought him the Alicia Keys songbook and I was like, I want to play Diary of Alicia Keys. And he was like, okay, you can, you can play the parts, but like you can't sing it at the recital. So I literally just played If I Ain't Got You without singing because it was a classical thing and it just wasn't a good fit. And so right around 12 is when my mom was like, let's get you a different piano teacher, somebody that, you know, will help you learn pop music. And that teacher, Ken Lample, he was the one that said, why don't you write your own song? You know, why don't you try to write a song like Alicia Keys does? And that was when it started. So Cool. Mm -hmm. If I ain't got you, use a good song to start with. Yes, that was the first one that I started with. And I just, I thought she looked like such a badass up there, like singing and playing. And she wrote the songs. And um, I just really connected with her from a young age. I just thought she was so empowering and awesome. And I wanted to be her. I dig it. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the first song that you wrote that you were like happy with? Um, you know what? And I want to get back to this. When I was young, I just wasn't judgmental. Like I, I wrote, um, almost every day after school. That was my thing. I would come home and I would, we lived in, my parents have this old house that was built in like the early 1900s. And there are these, um, pocket doors that you can pull out. And so the dining room, that's where the piano was. And I would like pull the doors shut and like pull this other, and I would just be in this little room and that was like my safe space. And I wrote all the time and, um, I wasn't concerned whether or not it was good. I was just doing it, you know? And I liked, sh my parents were super supportive. They would sit and listen to the songs that I would write. And, you know, my piano teacher was really supportive and just having that little unit that was like, you can do this. I didn't have much doubt at that age. You bring up a really good point because kids generally don't. Yeah. That's not something that you figure out until later. Yeah. It's like you start to get nicks and, you know, people start to have like strong opinions about what's good and what's not. Mm -hmm. But no, you're right. Uh, kid, kids aren't afraid to fail or, yeah. you know, make something silly and whatnot. Um, hmm. We'll tell you what. Tell me about like one of the early songs that you remember. Mm -hmm. There was one song. It was probably the second or third song that I wrote. Mm. Um, the, <laughs> the lyrics in the chorus are never making the cut. I'm not good enough. Try what I do. Walk in my shoes. I dare you. Uh -huh. Like very dramatic, <laughs> um, uh, you know, heart wrenching. And I'm a 12 year old that like had not really gone through any struggle. <laughs> so I don't know where exactly it was coming from, but I was just able to sort of like dig down and pull it out. And um it was like therapy for me, you know, it was like I could get these ideas out in a song and I could make them beautiful. And, um, that song, I just remember after writing that being like, wow, that's cool that I just did that. You know, I don't know what this is about, but here it is. It's interesting that little snippet that you gave me is still, I don't think you've ever really lost kind of the inner monologue part mm -hmm. of your songwriting. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that, that really, really comes through, especially in like a lot of your lyrics. Oh, it's probably my roommate. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so you started, you were about 12 years old when you started writing your own music and having mm -hmm. these lessons. Um, so do you remember at what point you decided that you were going to go to the University of Miami? Um, I had been really set on NYU. Uh -huh. Like I really wanted to go to NYU because I just had dreams of living on the Lower East Side. You know, a girl, a little girl growing up in New Jersey, it's like I just wanted to live in New York. So I had been set on NYU, but uh, it was a really tough program to get into, and it was really based in production, and I hadn't done any recording in high school, aside from, like, 
maybe just recording a little bit in GarageBand, but this was like a production program. And so um, I just remember my piano teacher was like, check out all these other programs. And he showed me, you know, Berkeley and USC and University of Miami. And so I just, um, I kept my options open. And because there weren't a ton of songwriting programs, I just started applying to the ones that I knew existed. And then um, I went down, I think the turning point for me was when I went to do the audition down there. I flew down. I'd never been to Miami before and it was beautiful. The weather was amazing. I think the audition was in November, so it was gorgeous. Um, and the campus looks like a resort. I mean, there's like a lake in the middle and there's palm trees. And, uh, I remember after the audition, just feeling like I had connected most with the teachers that had been listening to that audition. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, they just um, the program was at the time only ten or fifteen people in the program, so it was brand new. It only been around for three years, um, and it was a totally different experience than the Berkeley audition, where you know that's a it's a music school only. So there were tons of, and I came from this tiny little town where my grade was ninety kids, and I was the only songwriter. So I just gravitated towards the feeling of uh, community and small, and um, that's how I ended up at Miami, really. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So I went to MTSU um, mm. for a similar program to what Miami has, but um, I was there for audio. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been curious about what it's like to teach songwriting, because mm-hmm. they, they, they also have a songwriting program, mm-hmm. but I, I never took any of those classes. Um, do they, do they approach it from a a primarily theory perspective? Is it like, do they have classes on lyricism? Do they have classes on phrasing? Like how exactly does that work? Yeah. So the, the program that I was in, they did basic music theory, basic keyboard. Like those were sort of like the core music classes that we took. Um, and those were based in classical theory, which I thought what didn't really serve us very well, but you know, it was basic, basic theory classes. And then they had um, specific classes that were writing in the style of something. So we had like an Anglo-American songwriting class, which we wrote like old folk music and we tried to emulate that style. Then we had an Afro-American class where we're doing like old blues songs. Um, And then there was a pop, pop one, which was like from the fifties till now and we sort of went through each decade and tried to emulate the different styles so like the teacher would assign you a song like I got assigned a Prince song and I had to write in the style of Prince remember what song it was I don't remember (laughs) (laughs) I don't um but that was sort of the approach there and then as you got further along in the program so like my junior and senior year we had one-on-one lyric writing um coaching so like I was uh, my mentor was Craig Carruthers, who actually lives here, and he's a Nashville. He's been a Nashville writer since the late '80s. Um, but we would have one-on-one Skype sessions, and he would just critique my lyric writing and give me prompts and stuff like that. And then there was also an ensemble that you could bring your original songs in and into a band. And so there would be kids from the jazz program that were in that ensemble and would read your charts, and you would try to like arrange the song and get it ready for a show. So. Um, I, w- I would say all the people that were there had been songwriters. Like you couldn't really come to the program unless you had a basic understanding of writing. And although I did learn a lot of things, I was very d- diligent about not losing my voice while I was there. Um, and they were encouraging of that. Like they didn't want to change us. They didn't want to make us do what they thought was good for us. 
Um, they just sort of wanted to give us structure and options for how to construct a song um, and keep our options open, which I thought was a really good approach. Sounds like it was. Mm -hmm. One thing I'm interested in, because you before you got to, to Miami, you had been playing piano for a while at that mm -hmm. point already. Do you feel like... How, how, how much to your, your playing did Miami contribute or how much of it was already there before you got there? Because mm -hmm. when I listen to you, and clearly you have a very beautiful voice on your own, mm -hmm. but you also have a very distinctive voice as a piano player. Um, I think that your voicings are really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of like uh, suspensions and substitutions. Yeah. Um, it's really, really cool. And it's something that I noticed and jumped out at me when I was listening to the record. Um, how much of that was stuff that you were already bringing before you got to college and how much of it came after? Uh, I think a lot of it came from college. I mean, I sort of just fell in with a lot of the jazz kids there, um, started listening to Joni Mitchell and James Taylor and, and um, just expanding my understanding of, of chords. I mean, I had a basic understanding of extensions, but really I was just playing triads before I got to Miami. Um, and then when I was there, that's when all of the extensions and the substitutions and um, really just like falling into uh, experimental chords and, and not um, being so strict about what I was playing. And I, I credit that to probably being around a lot of jazz musicians when I was in school. Very cool. I dig it. Mm -hmm. So at what point does Nashville come into the story? What did you do after you got out of college? So... Like I said, I had been really set on New York for a long time. And I remember spring of my senior year, I was like, I'm going to Brooklyn. Like, that's where I'm going to live. Started looking up rent in Brooklyn. Yeah, did you cry? <laughs> and I was like, there's no way. <laughs> there's no way. Because this is, I mean, the one thing I had made a promise to myself while I was in school was like, I am not going to get a nine to five when I graduate. I will get a part-time job if I need to. I will do what I got to do to pay rent. But I am not going to you know, leave school and immediately go into, you know, working some job that I'm going to hate. I really want to give myself a chance to do this. So um, I took a trip to Nashville. I knew one person here and I came and visited and stayed with them. Um, and I just liked the feel of it, like walking around in East Nashville. I was like, I feel like I'm in Highland Park, New Jersey right now. You know, it was like, it was really beautiful. And then I looked up rent prices. I found a place for $600 near Belmont. And I was like, man, I'm just going to try this. So came here after living in Miami for the summer after my senior year, moved here, got a job lifeguarding and teaching swim lessons at the downtown Y and been here ever since. Here ever since. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems like it's been fruitful and productive too. It has. And I was not expecting that. If you had told me while I was in college or when I was younger that I was going to live in Nashville, I would have laughed in your face because <laughs> I just had so many... Uh, ideas of what it was like in the South. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. We'll tell you what, let's get into the record. Um, so I'm trying something new today because like I, I'll, I'll write like a blurb mm -hmm. and not because I want to be like a music journalist or sound like a music journalist, but it just kind of gives me, it, it gives me a platform to kind of concisely explain how I felt about what I listened to. Mm -hmm. Right. So this, and everybody's like, you know, wary of like comparisons or whatnot. Like, when people make, at least when I make comparisons, I'm not saying, well, you sound like this person. It's just kind of like a reference point, if that makes sense. I'm not offended by that at all. So I, I'm going to read you my blurb. Okay. All right. So I'm excited. From Blue to Gold is a refreshing take on the singer-songwriting uh, singer tradition, uh, touching on the sounds reminiscent of Carole King, Tracy Chapman, Natasha Bedingfield, and Leona Lewis. It reminded me of like all those things kind of wrapped into one. 
Um, this album defies expectations by subverting traditional song structures and exhibiting exceptional musicianship, but never forgetting that the song is the most important part. Um, so, oh my gosh, that's my little blurb. I love it. Yeah. Do you like any of those artists? Well, everybody likes Carol King. Yeah. I mean, I get compared to her a bunch, which is the ultimate honor. Yeah. I mean, she's the standard for songwriting, in my opinion. Uh, simple but interesting. Um, Tracy, I mean, queen, legend. Mm -hmm. Like, that's an honor. And then Liana and Natasha, like, that's what I was listening to in middle school. Like, it was Natasha Bedingfield, Liana Lewis, Sarah Bareilles, Alicia Keys, you know, like... It was it was that time, and I think a lot of young girls were listening to that same stuff. So I would definitely say like that's spot on. I'm kind of mad at it. myself for leaving Alicia Keys out. I think uh, that's easy, okay. Easy like that could have been an Alicia Keys song. I think I would love for Alicia to record that. Yeah, um, let's put that out there. Uh, tell me about that song. <laughs> um, that song was a turning point for me in my writing. Uh, Pre this record, I had a lot of like dark and deep stuff that was personally, I hadn't worked through it and I was putting it in songs as a way of dealing with it. And I, I had a lot of anger and sadness in a lot of my early stuff. Yeah, pre this record. I mean, this record seriously was a turning point for me just in my life and I wanted to document that um, of just my perspective and being more hopeful and, you know, leaning into love and trusting love. Um, and that's what this song, that's what that song is about. I mean, it's just like letting it be easy, letting it be okay. Let it, and not in a cheesy way, just like, um, being happy for once and not, and not constantly focusing on the negative parts or the, you know, the doubt. Um, yeah, my friend Mary Bragg helped me write that one. And she's a, I don't know if you know her, but she's like Americana folk, wonderful songwriter in town. And she's just such a great lyricist. And it was our first co-write together. And I just brought her this idea. I was like newly falling in love. And I was like, I just kind of want to write a happy song. Like I just, I'm done. I'm done writing all these breakup songs, all these heartbreak songs, all this sadness. Like, let's talk about the easy parts. Let's talk about the light. And she was like, all right, let's do it. And we wrote that tune in one day. So. Okay. Well, shout out Mary. I'm very interested in, so it, it, it certainly feels like most of the time the lyrics come first for you, mm -hmm. right? Now, what is it like putting lyrics that already exist to a melody? So with two of the songs on the record, I think when I think about myself and I remember, they were both um, poems first. So I had been doing a lot of like free writing. Actually, I did this prompt where I would take, I have this big book of Maya Angelou poems and I would take, before I read her poem, I would just take the title and write my own poem to that title. And so she has a, a, two poems, one called On Remembering and then one called When I Think About Myself. And like I took those two and then wrote my own poem to it. And then once I started getting the music together for those songs, I just sort of took lines from the poems that I thought fit well over the music and morphed them as I was putting it over the music. So that's one way I do it. And then I feel like uh, the easiest for me is if I free, free write, like not a poem, but just like literally throw up on a page of an idea and then and then just kind of go through. And as I'm finding chords, follow some sort of melody and let the words kind of fall out over it. Yeah. Um, 
it's so hard for me to imagine doing it that way. It clearly works. It's just I like I've always started with melodies first, and yeah. I, I think that it's important to challenge yourself when you're writing music mm-hmm. and try something different. Mm-hmm. I just like sometimes don't like to try different things and mm-hmm. whatnot, but. Um, it's just so interesting to like take something that at least, I mean, poetry has kind of a cadence to it already. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly I would have trouble taking it and then, oh, well, then now this is like a complete product. I almost always have to start with melodies. I used to be that way. Yeah. I think before this record, that's how I wrote most of my music was a melody or a chord progression idea first. Mm-hmm. And I was like you, I was like, I need to get out of my comfort zone and try something different. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't know. And I heard, I forget where I hear this, heard this quote, but um, somebody was saying like the lyrics aren't as malleable as the music. Like the lyrics are, are have to be so intentional and picked through first and the melody is, can be anything. And that, yeah. that really like struck me at the time. And that's how I started doing it. Yeah. I, I was going through it in my head trying to decide whether or not I agreed. And then I was mm-hmm. like, no, no, I think, I, th- I think that I do agree yeah. because a lot of the times you'll maybe you'll write a melody first and the lyrics that you want to write they won't mm-hmm. fit whether for, for 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 any number of reasons yeah and then you feel stuck to the melody and then you feel stuck and you're like yeah. oh well, i already did it and i like it so what am i gonna do so that's why for me i think it's it's been nice to be like okay i yeah. know what i want to say now and now i don't have to be like oh i can't find a melody like i'm gonna find a melody but you can't always find the lyrics that's actually quite insightful. I had never thought of it that way. Mm. I, f- I forget where I heard that. And now I feel it's not my idea. It's someone else's idea that I stole and have used to my advantage to write this record. I mean, you know, <laughs> hell, ultimately, that's all that we do. Exactly. Now, this obviously, because this is the most recent one, this is the one I've spent the most time with. Is this your first full length? Yeah. This is your first full length. Mm-hmm. Okay. Was that kind of a daunting process to go into? Were you scared? Or? So when I set out to make this, I had set up the Kickstarter just to do an EP. Like I was like, I'm just going to do four or five songs. And then my producer, Ian, was like, you have more than that. And we started like going through the songs and I was like, man, yeah, I have a record here. So I've always dreamed about putting my full length record out, you know, like since I started writing songs, I thought about it. Um, it wasn't that daunting. It was like, this is time, you know, it's time to do it. Like, let's, let's get it. I think it's 11 tracks. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's 11 tracks. How long had you been sitting on them before you put the Kickstarter out and started? Um, so the first song that I wrote on the record was the last song on the record, which is Circle. And that one uh, I wrote when I found out my grandmother had cancer. And that was while I was in college. So like that was the first song I wrote. And then the rest of the songs probably started. Um, mm, I want to say like 2018, I started writing them. And then I set up the Kickstarter or maybe 2017. And then I set up a Kickstarter two summers ago in 2018 and I finished the songs in that fall. So I was still writing while we were raising money to record. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is it ever weird looking back on songs that started several years before the record looked out for you? Like, yeah, I mean, circle is the reason I'm doing music today. Like that's that song for me. I remember writing that. I mean, I wrote it in like 30 minutes. It came super quick. I feel like I didn't even consciously write that song. And then it was there and I was like, I guess I'm doing music. I guess I'm going to start putting out music because I, I really believe in that song. I think it's maybe my best song that I've ever written. Um, and uh, yeah, that song led me to making this record. Mm-hmm. 
for sure. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. What is the um? So what does the pre-production process look like? Because you had to get a band together to, for this record. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it started just me and Ian at the time we were roommates, which mm-hmm. was wonderful because I could just get out of bed, make myself some tea and walk over and <laughs> start recording. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just made piano vocal demos of all the tunes. That was the first step. Um, and then I just spent a lot of time thinking about like how I wanted them to be arranged and, you know, going back and forth with Ian. Then we picked out who we were going to have like track and we went in, I want to say it was December of 2018 and tracked for two days straight at Smokestack in Berry Hill. And we just got like the bones of everything. And so I would say pre-production was mostly just piano vocal demos and then Ian sort of messing around with some programmed drums and just sort of getting an idea of the feel. And we also made a playlist of like um, reference songs, Hmm. which was like Leanne Le Havas and John Mayer. And um, there were some old songs like Joni Mitchell and James Taylor on there. But um, we did a lot of like digging for sounds and just trying to capture the overall vibe that we were going to go for. The band on the album is sick. Like, yeah. Um, super A1 players on it. Thanks. Yeah, they're. I feel very lucky to have those players on my record. <laughs> so with that being said, I want to ask you a question. Mm-hmm. So I was listening to Like a Flower today mm-hmm. on repeat because I was trying to figure out, there's like a mixed meter thing. Mm-hmm. Or is, is, what what is happening? Yeah, so there's the, <laughs> <laughs> the the intro and then like in between the choruses, there's like a bar of three. So it's like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. So it's like seven. And before even before the band gets in the studio, that was already written into the song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the original. Okay. Yeah. Was there any particular reason that you wanted to do that, or did it just feel right? I had so that song. I had just been playing around with dropping beats. Like I just wanted to like try to take out a beat here or there, and like you know, I didn't want it to feel forced. I wanted to. I wanted it to feel so natural. And that song. I mean, that song's about nature and how. Um, there are imperfections in nature that are really beautiful and I, I wanted the music to reflect that. So I don't know. It just sort of, it just sort of happened naturally. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it, it flows supernaturally. I was just listening to it. First of all, trying to figure out what exactly it was. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, man, this must've just been so stressful to rehearse, but maybe not. It felt natural to me. I mean, I've yeah. been playing it a little while when we went into the studio. So I think, it, I don't know, it just sort of fell together and the yeah. musicians on the record, I mean, they're all, incredible so they they were they were wonderful compliments to gotcha to it when you so when you do the basics like are you marking the vocals or is it just like everybody gets in you rehearsed it a few times everybody just plays it or do you try to get it like as live sounding as possible each song was a little different um some of the songs i had pre-recorded like a scratch vocal that we would just play along to Mm -hmm. and then i did the vocal after the fact and then there were a few that i did the vocal and the keys at the same time um, and we kept it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, word up. Yeah. Balance is a very uplifting kind of love tune. Mm-hmm. Um, I, what I like about this album is like, there's a, a decent balance between like ballads and very, very, um, uh, 
upbeat tunes. Yeah. Um, it, it looks like it's very popular on Spotify too, but it's also one of my personal favorites. Mm. What do you remember about the writing and recording process for this song? It's funny that you bring that one up because that one started as a ballad. What? Yeah, it was a song called The Sun and the Moon. And I had had this idea and it was this like sort of flowing ballady thing. Um, and I brought it to my friend Josh Blaylock, who many refer to as the mayor of Nashville. He's been here a long time. He went to Belmont. He, mm -hmm. he was a keys player in Dynamo for a long time. And uh, he was actually the first person I met in Nashville and has been one of my closest friends since moving here. And I brought him that idea. And if you know Josh, like he's got like a hundred watt smile, like he's beautiful and he's just so loving and joyful. And when I brought him this idea, he then showed me like this little like beat that he had been making. And I was like, let me try that over this. And it turned into a dance song, you know, just because he was involved in it. And, um, I really, at that time I had been writing a lot of ballads. And like I said, I was trying to get out of that. I was trying to write more uplifting, positive lyrically. And I was also trying to just, you know, up the BPM on, on a lot of the songs. So I was just falling into like this groove thing, which is cool, but I wanted to have songs that like people could put on and dance to, or just like roll their windows down and drive to. So that was, a uh, that was a beautiful process, bringing that to life with Josh. I never would have guessed that it started as a ballad. Yeah, I can show you the original demo. It's very different. Yeah, that would be super cool. <laughs> it's very different. Um, it was weird because one of the questions I was going to ask you was if you had kind of had the flow, like the, the, the flow of tempo changes already planned out or if they all just kind of developed naturally. Um, I would say the more upbeat songs came later as a result of me realizing that a lot of them were sort of just grooving at the same place and... I'm just trying to push myself out of my comfort zone with that. Mm -hmm. Were there other tracks that you would have liked to include on this album that maybe didn't make it? Or were, did you like s signal these or single these 11 out and say, all right, this is what it's going to be? Um, we probably had like 25 to 30 that we had demoed. And then it sort of like narrowed it down. And there were a few that didn't make it onto this record, but like might make it onto the next one. I think since I'm so early in my career, I'm realizing that there are people that write songs and then don't put them out for like six or seven years because it's just not right for that record. Mm -hmm. um, and since I'm a noob, I don't really know that yet. And so I've been I've been discovering that through this process of putting the record out and sort of thinking about my next record. There are songs that I wrote before this record came before this record came out that I think will be on the next one. Um, and we actually, we were slated to do 12 and then one of them got dropped because it just wasn't feeling right. We tried to record it in the studio and I was like, man, this is not, it's not feeling like it's cohesive with the rest. So we ended mm -hmm. up um, putting it off to the side. Okay. Mm -hmm. Shame. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. I like this song a lot. Thanks. Um, and it's, it's it's interesting, and we're gonna we're gonna get to Nashville musicians for change mm -hmm. here in a bit. But it's one of the like there, there there's some songs that especially depending on where your mindset is at, they they have an ambiguous quality about them, mm. because certainly at face value this sounds like it, it's a relationship oriented song, and I, I'm not I'm not misreading that, am I? Um, I think people have have interpreted it like that, yeah. It's but the 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 part that kind of makes me go like back and forth is like there's this um, this montage of I still believe in freedom, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like well, what what what, what I, I I'm not really clear on what's going down there. I know I like the song a lot, but tell me a little bit about mm -hmm. how what 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 the inspiration behind the song yeah. is. Yeah, that song 
came after a really tough writer's block that I was going through. And I think all artists and creatives struggle with that of like, where, you know, how am I going to get this back? How is that? How is that magic that I felt last time I made something? Where is it? Where is it? How do I catch it? Um, and I was sitting at the piano and I just kept thinking like, write what you know, write what you know. I was like, what do I know? And I was like, I know what it feels like to be a woman. I know what it feels like to be a woman in the music industry. Um, I know what it feels like to be a woman in a male dominated space. And that's where that song came from. Okay. Mm -hmm. Just like my relationship with that and not letting my fears of saying the wrong thing or being too bold or being too loud. I mean, it's, I think all humans go through that of like, am I doing too much right now? Am I going to be too much for someone? Um, and we end up like confining ourselves. Like it's not even, it's not even the patriarchy or white supremacy or whatever it is that's holding us back. It's, you know, that's there, but it's the ideas of that in our own head. And then it's us that stop ourselves from being our truest self. And that's what that song is about is like freeing myself and hopefully other people listening to it can feel that freedom of like, I'm not going to let this hold me back. I'm not going to stop myself. I'm not going to let my past or my shame or any of that stuff um, stop me. I was reading a lot of Brene Brown at the time too. So yeah, she talks a lot about how shame is tool of the oppressor and like it doesn't work. Like it doesn't work at all. So there's no place for it. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, you bring up an interesting point. Um, obviously, as the music industry becomes more digitized and also more decentralized, mm. uh, and you're all—I mean, I think just at your core, you're a pretty optimistic person to mm -hmm. begin with, right? Mm -hmm. um, do you feel like the shifts that we're seeing in the music industry—that's a little—that's further away from institutions and more towards artists as individuals—is going to make it a more ha an easier environment to navigate for women, or do you think that it's? I hope it's easier for women. I hope it's easier for Black people. I hope it's easier for immigrants. I hope it's easier for all the people that have felt like they haven't had a chance to say what they want to say and that they don't have a fair shot. And I and I do think that we're moving towards that. Hopefully, sweet. You know. <laughs> so I think this is a personal favorite of mine was doesn't matter. Mm. Um, <laughs> it is it is it, it is it is very much a pop song. That's like uh, the opposite of shame. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I I mean I I wasn't even necessarily making that parallel, <laughs> yeah. but you're right. Um, yeah. yeah, it doesn't matter is a whole lot of fun. It's very very carefree. Mm. Um, it reminds me of kind of like it, I mean it, it's not it's not eighties pastiche, right? But it has kind of like an 80s vibe mm -hmm. to it just a little bit. Um, I really like, what is it that you say in that song? No, one, no one's got it figured out. Um, because that's one of the mantras that I tell myself all the time is that like it, when it gets down, when ev everybody is out here really just freestyling <laughs> this and trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you... You throw the dice. Okay, well, I like that one. I'm going to keep doing that. You throw it again. Okay, maybe that didn't work out so well. But it's very, very easy to feel like everybody else knows what they're doing and you don't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But in reality, everybody is just melting mm. um, in their head in the same way. Um, but even aside from the fact that I had a lot of ideological agreement with that song, I thought it was just super catchy. And it was Thanks. a whole lot of fun. Yeah. Have you got to uh, rehearse any of these any of these live yet? I know that you've been doing live streams and stuff like that, but I think most of that stuff's been solo, right? Yeah, I've done a few solo live streams, and I did one with the band. Um, but we were playing a lot of these songs. Like I did a tour 
with uh, my drummer and my bassist, Zach and Ross. The three of us went out and did like a two week run. And this was before, this was like a year before the record came out. So like sometime last year, maybe a little before that. And we, we were playing these songs. So we've, we've played them out live a bunch and, you know, I hope I get a chance to do that again next year or the year after that or the year after that, like whenever we get to do that again, I really like playing them live. And like, I don't know, I'm a big proponent of like, it doesn't have to sound like the record. Like, yeah. And I think that's one thing that the industry has put pressure on people to like sound exactly like they did on the record or make it, you know, use all these tracks to make it sound big and like huge, like the production. And I'm like, I think it's kind of cool. Like if the record can just live in its own space and then you make it different at the show. So it's a totally different experience. The, the executives might want that. I don't think most people want, I don't think so either. Yeah. I don't think most people want that. Yeah, I think it should be a unique experience every time you're playing it, and you shouldn't sing it the same way. You should approach it how you're feeling that day. Mm-hmm. You know, it should be it should be genuine and authentic expression of the song at that time. And that's the coolest thing about songwriting is like, the songs have changed for me. You know, like it's I I approach them differently, but it doesn't matter. It's like, I love that I wrote that <laughs> song because I need that reminder all the time. I am a I am a perfectionist. Yeah, I'm a people pleaser, and I can get in my head about trying to be be show up perfect and that song has been such a wonderful reminder to myself of like stop giving so many fucks like no one cares like just just be you you know it's it's interesting because you, i mean you've heard people say that perfect or perfection is like the enemy of good enough and whatnot mm. um which i i tend to agree with um but at the same time you do a really good job of the polish that doesn't feel like it's overproduced it just mm. feels like everything feels intentional mm. i think that's the important thing mm. Um, but no, like, uh, oh, you can't, you can't obsess over it to the point where it takes the fun out of it. Exactly. Um, Because once the fun's out of it, then like, you're not going to, you're not going to be having a good time making it. What's the point? You're not going to be excited about (laughs) when it comes out and then we're not going to have a good time. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Um, is there anything about this? Like what, 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 you said that Circles is like your favorite songs you've ever written, right? Mm. Is that your favorite track on the album too? Um, I don't know if I have a favorite track since they really are all different. I'm really proud of that track. I mean, it was a one take, just me in the living room playing. And then we got, you know, sounds of the um, wind chimes outside at the very end, which is just like, it's going to be a beautiful segue into the stuff that I'm making now because I've been recording sort of like the next things. Mm -hmm. And um, I just wanted that song to be like, leaving it open for that. Um, I am proud of that, that track. And I, I'd been holding on to that cause I just wanted to do it justice. And at the time I wrote it, I was like, I just don't think I'm ready to perform it in the way that it needs to be performed. Um, but I'm really proud of that track. Yeah. You sound very excited about this new music that you're working on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about it or is this going to be a surprise that we have to talk about another time? No, I can talk about it. Um, I got no label telling me not to, so Fair enough. I can I can talk about it. Um, yeah, I recorded two songs. One is a song from my first EP that I sort of reimagined. And then uh, the other one is sort of a winter, winter song. I would not call it a Christmas song, but it's like a... I don't know. It's a comment on on what this winter is going to feel like compared to the other winters. Um, okay, what do you mean when you say that? Um, just like with the pandemic, and uh, you know, this year has been unprecedented in so many ways. And I, I've had this song for a little while that I 
have been waiting for the right winter to put it out. And I updated some of the lyrics and it just feels right. Like, so yeah, that's going to come soon. Those two songs. Okay. Well, I'm very, very excited for those. One thing that I'm interested in, um, because music marketing and, uh, what's the word? Promotion Mm. is, it's, it's this thing that we all have to do in one way or another, and it's very weird and unstandardized. Mm. And it's, it, you know, we're all navigating it. There are no right or wrong answers and whatnot. But mm. how has how that been for you, like, now that this album has been out for a little while? What kind of approach have you taken to it? Um, I've taken a communal approach in my marketing of, like, who do I know that may like this and may want to show it, you know, may want to show it to their followers, um... I didn't pay for marketing for this record just because I didn't have the budget for it really. And um, some people may say that was a bad decision, but um, I think, you know, I'm not touring right now. Like I, you know, I'm like, I'll just like, I put it out so that people can find it and listen to it. And I'm hoping that people find it in organic ways, you know? And so I've just been doing partnerships with people that make sense, like us doing this podcast and, um, BMI has been great at helping me get the word out about it. And, you know, I don't know. I'm not too concerned with, like, stardom or or fame or anything like that. Like, uh, I just want it to be organic. And and I'm hoping that through my community of, like, the people that I play for and sing for sharing it, that, you know, the word will get out about it. And uh, social media is a fucked up place. (laughs) You know, it's a... So first I would say money in music marketing doesn't go nearly as far as people exactly. think it was. Like you, pe- first of all, it has to be good. Like you have to have something worth sharing. Mm-hmm. Um, second of all, people have to care about you. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Um, yeah. And, you know, I think that the way that you do it will go a whole lot further in the long term than a few dollars will. Yeah. Um, I've spent money on marketing before and felt like it was a waste, you know? Oftentimes it can be, um, especially because I think a lot of the time you like like as musicians we just want shit to get heard mm-hmm. more than anything right mm-hmm. and a lot of people engage in like oh you're paying for promotion or playlist placement and all this kind of stuff with no real goal in mind mm-hmm. like sometimes like, promotion really isn't even about the record itself it's about you mm-hmm. and you know giving people a reason to like invest in you and what you believe in that mm-hmm. sort of thing like for you Social justice is something that's really, really important, mm-hmm. which I think is, is is true of a lot of musicians, but you seem to take a, a, a much more active role into it. Mm. So I didn't even mean for that to be a segue into Nashville Musicians for Change, <laughs> but we're going to do it anyway. Sure. So you've been here for five years. How long have you, how long has it been since you've been doing Nashville Musicians for Change? Uh, so like many, I think, organizations that have popped up over the last, I don't know, how long has it been since George Floyd's murder? June. We're in October now, so yeah, I, I don't even know how many months that is. That's when it started. So is it that new? It's that new. Oh, so Elena Anderson, she's the founder. She had this idea for a little while, and I think that all of that sort of sparked her to be like, "Let's do this," you know. So she started it. I want to see. Yeah, it was probably like mid June, and sort of brought a few of us in on the ground level. Um, so I've been a part of it since the beginning. Um, and it still is in its infancy and we're still figuring our way out, but, um, it's been wonderful to be a part of. And, um, I'm just proud to be a part of a group of musicians that 
you know, give a fuck and want to change something. And, and not just on a, like a global level, it's like, you got to start local. Like we want to change it here so that we can contribute to a bigger global change that I think is happening right now. Absolutely. There's a very exciting Senate race happening mm-hmm. right now with Marquita Bradshaw, mm-hmm. um, who is literally one of the most progressive Senate candidates in the country. Yes. And um, I don't, I forget who she beat for the Democratic primary part of it, but, you know, he, he's like, you know, established Democrat, mm-hmm. like average dude or whatnot, but that was a total upset. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, underscores why it's important for people to get out and vote because, yeah. like, you know, she could win. She could win. I think I hope she, she could. Wins. Yeah. She's doing phone banking. So if anybody wants to get involved, like she's doing phone banking up until the election. And um, I mean, that's the goal of National Musicians for Change. Like we're just trying to amplify these messages of organizations and people like Marquita who have like, you know, they're doing it like they're they're out there. They're in the streets, like trying to make change. And we want to we want to have National Musicians for Change be a place where our musician community can come and be like, how do I get involved? You know? Just have it be a central hub for getting involved with organizing and activism. This is certainly a critical time, and there are a lot of things happening right now. Mm-hmm. But um, what what is it that you're most concerned about going forward? And like, obviously, the election is literally two weeks away. Yeah. Um, but looking forward to the next four years. Yeah. Um, what is it that like is the thing that is consistently in the forefront of your mind? Um, I would say I think about climate change every day. Mm-hmm. That's something that's always on my mind. Um, Yeah, I mean, that affects all of us. And it does feel like that could be the thing that could bring us all together. You know, like if we could all get on the same page with this is affecting everyone and there's no there's none of us without making changes towards this. um, That feels like a good starting place. And then like I would say like the class discrepancy issue is like a big thing for me. Like I'm just trying to find like the issues where we come together as Republicans and Democrats because we have to. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense Yeah, on surface level. Mm-hmm. But going back to something you said or earlier, you said the social media is a fucked up place. Yeah, it is. Um, you would think that as it relates to the climate and as it relates to the economy, mm-hmm. whether you live in Nebraska or you live in New York City, you live in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. you would think that people would have something to agree on. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it certainly appears that we can't agree on anything. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think that is? Let me start by asking that question. Mm-hmm. Why, why does it seem like literally nobody can agree on anything? Because we haven't been taught as a society how to be humble mm-hmm. and to be wrong. Mm-hmm. I think we're so focused on being right and so focused on winning and and gaining at the expense of other people. Um, yeah, and I just think that our American culture needs to shift towards, you know, winning everything and gaining more money, and that's the key to happiness. And, and maybe it's actually just, like, investing in your community and learning na- learning who your neighbors are and being more conscious about how your money and your actions affect your community. Um, yeah, I don't know how that happens. Like maybe it's like a, a church thing. Like maybe we shift how, you know, religion is affecting people. And instead of, you know, um, 
I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I don't have all the answers. <laughs> I, I, there, and I, there, there, I wasn't looking for anything. Yeah. I, I wanted your genuine opinion. I, I mean, that's that's my opinion is like, I think that there are a lot of um, people that are, you know, low to middle class white living out in rural America that have not been exposed to the communities and cities. And so they don't, they just see people that look different from them as other and different and wrong and criminals. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't know how that exposure happens, but that's why I say the church. Cause I just feel like maybe that's a way to bring people together. Maybe that's a way to unite people for a common goal of like actually um, caring about people that don't look like you and that don't live near you. And just cause you don't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. Um, I don't know. It's in, so you're, are you, are you religious? I'm not. No, it's interesting. Cause I'm not either. Yeah. But, but and I've, I was having this conversation with a friend a couple of weeks ago. There are very few community institutions outside of churches. Mm-hmm. And especially for people in our age group, that's kind of something that we just don't do anymore. Yeah. Um, and, while I would certainly, you know, I certainly advocate for a world that is more secular. Mm-hmm. I'm also coming to the realization that for most people, that without some sort of religious body, they they don't they don't have any community roots. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. Totally. I don't. And, and even like when you when you when you talk about like rural America for the most part, like if you live on the coasts or you live in the city, you know those people are overwhelmingly secular. They're people that go to church, but mm-hmm. for the most part, that's not necessarily the lens through which people view their lives or the world. But when you look at the country's interior, they do, which is one among several reasons on why there's so much division between you know coastal cities and hubs and that sort of thing. Like people who live in the country, like it it. it on, like when you look at it on the outside, it looks like they have conflicting interests mm-hmm. and conflicting visions of the country. And I think that some of those cultural divisions ultimately serve to undermine what we very well could have in common. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of stresses me out because yeah. I don't it, it, it's hard for me to see a way forward if there are two fundamentally different visions on what the next 20, 30, 50, 100 years should look like. Mm-hmm. Even when, like, you talked about climate change, part of the reason why it's so hard to sell people on is because you have a lot of oil and gas companies who, yeah. you know, drill and they frack and they do all this, that, and the other. Those are in overwhelmingly rural communities. Yeah. Coal. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people see it as a threat to their livelihood. And that's on top of the fact that most, like, the manufacturing base in the United States has either been automated or, or, or shipped overseas. Yeah. So those jobs are gone. If you're not working in oil or you're not working in uh, a coal mine or something like that and you live in a place like Texas or you live in a place like West Virginia, the only thing you can do is work at Waffle House or, or, or Walmart or Wendy's, which doesn't pay you a living wage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they kind of leave those people out there just to, like, wither away. Yeah. Um, when it comes to something like the Green New Deal, Democrats never sell it as something as, okay, well, yeah, these things are going to go away. Here's what we can, these are the jobs that we can create for you exactly, instead. Yeah. It's always this whole thing of, it, it, it's it's almost like kind of like you're like super, super educated, like elite Democrat type likes punishing poor white people who live in the middle of the country, which yeah. that only reinforces a lot of the stigmas and belief systems that can sometimes like perif- per, uh, proliferate in rural areas. 
That's a losing formula for everybody. Exactly. Um, it stresses me out. It stresses me out because just like you were saying, you know, when it comes to the climate, when it comes to the economy, it seems like there's room to agree. Yeah. I mean, you look at some of those farmers and like they they know that it's happening. Yeah. They I mean, my boyfriend's from southern Illinois, so I've been out there. There's Trump flags all over the place. You know, it's a it's a very conservative, religiously conservative place. Um, but they're experiencing climate change and they know it's real because their farm is gone. Their crops are gone. So they know that something is changing. They know that, you know, there has to be a better way. And, you know, they're they're worried about feeding their families like you're talking about. Like it's it's a matter of how do I survive? How do I pass pass on something to my kids? Um, So I do think that it's about like what you're saying, like making sure that we have like a standard minimum wage, like $15 minimum wage everywhere. Like, why is that not a thing? You know, healthcare for everyone. That that shouldn't be a negative thing. Like these are things that I think could help everyone across the board, not just people in cities. And that to me seems like the way to do it. And maybe it's the way that we're presenting it as a, as Democrats. Like, I don't even, I don't, I like I'm Democrat, but like, because I have to be like, I don't like if there's no other option forced into it. Yeah. And so I'm like, let's get rid of this weird two party system and, and make it so that, you know, it's like the people's party. Like what's wild about it is that in, in the same way that like, you you can see and I can see that there is room for like average working people to agree. Yeah. The, the one thing that Democrat like like elected Democrats and Republicans agree on is that look, we're not going to make any fundamental changes to the economy. Yeah. They all agree on that part. Yeah. They agree. Well, no, healthcare shouldn't be a human right. They agree. We're not going to ra- raise the minimum wage. Yeah. Even the last time it was raised was what in the nineties? I don't know. I'm not going to look it up right now, but it's been a long time. Yes. Um, that like they'll 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 fight about all the cultural issues, and I'm not saying that there isn't a discussion that needs to be had about sure. the way that we treat one another and the way that we live with one another. But they, you know, like for example, you know, Republicans will be all gung ho about corporate handouts and shipping jobs overseas, but they'll be like, okay, but guess what? We don't believe in abortion though, so haha, vote for us. Right. And the Democrats will be like, yeah, you know, I mean, it's it, it's okay if we appoint a bunch of Wall Street people to the cabinet, because, you know, guess what? We have Black Lives Matter signs in front yep. of our office and whatnot, and it's like, okay, well, act like it. You Like, literally, if you want to show that Black Lives Matter, you know, black folks are disproportionately uh, affected by Poor living standards, yeah. poor wages, affordable housing, um, $15 minimum wage. Like yeah. th- those are some of the ways that you can communicate your solidarity that has real material benefits for people. Yes. Rather than just putting a sign up. It doesn't cost you anything to put a sign up. Yeah. Yeah, it's like moving away from the capitalist structure that has reigned supreme here for yeah. all eternity. Like. Um, I don't know. We just, we, we need to, we need to move some wealth around. Mm. It's fucked up that there are, you know, a handful of millionaires and billionaires in this country that could eradicate some of these problems, but because it's their money, mm. you know, in these corporations, because it's their money, um, and they don't, they don't have the same moral compass that a lot of us do. Like it's not going to happen. And th- that, that blows my mind that we can't just like distribute some of that wealth out a little more and make it a little little easier for people, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm preaching to the choir, I think, but yeah. it, it's not a matter of can't. It's yeah. a matter of won't. 
Yeah. They, you know, they just yeah. don't want to. Yeah. Um, they're, and I, I'm not totally hopeless about this. Like, mm-hmm. um, very similar to Marquita Bradshaw. Have you heard of Corey Bush? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, for anybody that doesn't know who Corey Bush is, she is a, she's in the House of Representatives. She just won a really big race um, in Missouri. It was the same district where um, Michael Brown was, was, mm-hmm. was, was shot. I guess that was six years ago now, but mm-hmm. she won against like this dude named Lacey Clay, who was, you know, this very run of the mill establishment yeah. Democrat had been there for decades, like longer than we've been alive. Yeah. <laughs> He's been in office. Um, and you know, she, she was like a, an, an organizer for black lives matter, like during the Ferguson uprisings all those years ago mm-hmm. when she got elected. The first thing that she said she was going to work on was a universal basic income during the pandemic. Like, that was the first thing that she was focused on. It wasn't all this weird, hey, you know, look how woke I am. It was like, people can't pay their bills. Let's do something. Yeah, And, and, and that seems like literally the, the, the ultimate yeah. Black Lives Matter signifier for somebody that is elected is economics. Yeah. Anyway. We could go all day. Yeah, no, that's my rant on that. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate it. I think everything you've said is brilliant, and more people need to be uh, unafraid to call call democrats out like democrats are so good at guilting people into and i don't know like it i'm kind of torn on this because it's too scary not to vote for joe biden at this point we have to yeah and i I saw that you voted already i did how long did you have to wait i waited for an hour at the hermitage library well i think that's a good sign it wasn't bad and honestly when we were looking around we were like this is great because it felt like everyone was coming out to say fuck you which was a good feeling. Like the whole time I was in line, I was like, this is exciting. You know, I saw a couple Trump flags like flying around on people's cars. But aside from that, it felt very much like this is our duty and we're going to do something. How are you feeling? Like, do you, I am, I am uh, cautiously optimistic that it will work out in our, in our favor to get rid of somebody who is just a fucking cancer on on everything right now. Um, I don't think it's going to fix everything. Obviously it's, you know, it's just the the first step towards us making a, you know, a better future for this country. Like right now it's just, I mean, it's sad. I think it's not even scary anymore. It's just sad. You know, you're right. Uh, You're you're right. I mean, it, it, it's still kind of scary. scary. It's still kind of (laughs) scary, but, um, it's definitely a lot more sad now, um, than it was like for, for most of this year, it's been really, like concerning yeah freaky it's been sad for me to see like how far and how horrible things have to get for people to actually care Mm -hmm. you know like even someone like me like i mean i voted for hillary in 2016 but like i could have been more gung-ho you know like i could have been like let's let's do something and i wasn't like i was like all right i'm gonna cast my vote and that's it and that's why this year it 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 really lit a fire under my ass to be like, I'm going to, I'm going to be more involved than I was last time. And I'm going to do a little bit more just so that I can look back and be like, I did something, you know, I did something to try to work against it. And and if he does get elected again, if he does get elected again, you know, I can at least say that I was working towards it, you know, and I, I gave a fuck and like, I don't know, it's, and I'm going to keep doing that. Like I'm committed. I really feel like now that my eyes have seen uh, the realities of the situation really clearly, I can't look away. Like I can't, I can't just act like it's not happening just cause it's not maybe affecting me. Doesn't mean that it's not my problem. I mean, I, th- I think the pandemic has kind of 
for, for a lot of people who maybe even aren't aren't super civically engaged and whatnot, yeah. I think that that's also lit a fire under a yeah. lot of people um, because it's just, you know, so many people have died as a result yeah. of it. It's ruined people, like people who are living, it's ruined their lives because yeah. it's, you know, destroyed their business or yeah. taken their job away. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it's just like, literally, you and I could have managed this pandemic better than the president managed it. Yes. And... Like little, little, all, all you had to do was listen. To, yeah. All you had to do was listen to the scientists. Yeah, and just like you know what, I'm gonna do whatever they say. We're still not doing that. Yeah, really. we're still not doing. Yeah, no, it um, it's it's not looking great. Um, yeah, like the numbers, and it's like weird me out a little bit. And I was like, you know what, it might be time to lock down again. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I want to go home for the holidays. My parents are older, um, mm-hmm. and they're very very concerned about. Which, by the way, get your flu shot. Mm. Um. I know a lot of people that don't believe in getting flu shots, and this is not the time to not be getting flu shots. I know. I got to go get mine. Yeah. Um, my, my parents have always been real big on getting flu shots, but they're, like, really, really, really big on it this year. Mm. Um, but that's just a, a, a terrible, terrible comorbids to be floating around Yeah. in the ether right now between COVID and uh, the flu. Um, but I think we've done the apocalyptic thing. Uh we got that bit out of the way yeah Yeah. um what do you so have you been listening to anything cool um there's this one band called tanari when have you heard of them i have not how do you spell that t-i-n-a-r-i-w-e-n and it's a band of refugees um from i think algeria oh okay um they started in like a camp there and they've been making this really interesting music it's beautiful it's very meditative and like um it it make it feels hopeful to me so i've been listening to that mm-hmm. much um that's just like this week i'm trying to think i listened to nick drake this morning okay uh he's just one of those like classic songwriters you know i love i love his stuff um who else have i been listening to I listen to Kashana Armstrong's record a lot. Mm-hmm. She's a. Do you know her? No, I think either she popped up in your artist like fans also oh, yeah. like section. Yeah. Or she's in your bio. One of those things. I literally saw that name today. Yeah, she's another Nashville writer here in town. Um, she was a music therapist for a while and then moved here. And um, you should check out her record and m- interview her because she's brilliant brilliant writer and yeah she she i think wrote the song of the year i mean the song of the year and the record of the year like her record's called listen it came out february before the pandemic even Uh hit and i don't know she's she's just like prolific and ahead of her time and okay yeah so i've been i've been listening to her record a lot just because it makes me feel hopeful that somebody that like i know and interact with um, is putting that sort of music out right now. Like we need, we need protest music now more than ever. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to, to see what comes of this year, um, musically from the Nashville musicians specifically. I'm going to be sure to check that record out and I'll also reach out to her since that you've, you've given yeah. her the endorsement. Um, yeah, but it was weird. Great. I was like, that literally just saw that name today, but yeah, she's in your fans also. Like, yeah. Um, you've co-written with her. Yeah. We wrote a song called mistakes um a while ago together that i put out as a single and then we wrote a song together over the summer over zoom that i really love um 
that I think, and it, it's a commentary on everything that's been happening. And I was really happy to collaborate with her. I'm probably going to put that one on the next record. So, yeah. I want your opinion on this. Sure. Should people expect all musicians to be civically engaged? Hmm. Is that a fair expectation? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if everyone has to be, but I feel like all artists should feel a responsibility to understand what's happening in their environment and in their community and in their city. Um, I mean, I don't know. We're, we're connected. We're all connected. And I think that the issues that are affecting the person over in North Nashville are, it affects me too, Mm -hmm. you know, just because it's not like a direct effect, you know, um, I think we're way more connected than we want to believe to everyone mm-hmm. that we live by. Um, and so, I don't know. I think it's an artist's responsibility to reflect the times. Like Nina Simone said, like, mm-hmm. you have to reflect what's happening. And, and if you're not right now, I think you're ignoring it or you're um, choosing to look away, which is fine, too. I don't think you have to be explicit about talking about it, but I think if you're if you're actively engaged in knowing what's happening and uh, um, that's, that's going to affect what you write. Okay. I, I like the way that you put it because you added the qualifier of actively understanding what's happening. Yeah. And I don't think it has to be this person is, is, is dealing with this right now. Like it doesn't have to be explicit. It doesn't have to speak exactly to the issue whatever you're writing but i think if you know what's happening as a person Mm -hmm. and you um are allowing that information to be in your brain then what you're going to write is going to be informed okay i ask that question because a lot of the time first of all pete like you know whether it be journalists or whether it be just average fans people have an expectation um of you know, the people that they look to, whether they be musicians or actors or what have you, to have an opinion, a well-informed opinion on, you mm-hmm. know, whatever the issue of the day might be. And a lot of times, you know, some musicians just don't. And not it's not necessarily an indication that they don't care. Maybe they just haven't done the reading or maybe mm-hmm. they're, you know, busy with other things. Like, there's been several examples this year, but, like, the one that's, like, the most, the one that, like, sticks out in my mind was, um, so Cardi B was... Um, buying a house mm-hmm. and um her her real estate agent was armenian and um up until about maybe a week and a half ago maybe maybe two weeks now um probably about a week and a half armenia and azerbaijan were embroiled in a um uh, a, a dispute i mean you know it was a, a small scale mm-hmm. warfare and whatnot and it it has a lot of uh complicated historical and ethnic roots and whatnot but mm-hmm. Obviously, the United States Armenian community was very, very upset, mm-hmm. and um, Cardi B was buying this house, and her real estate agent told her about it and asked her to post about it. Mm. Um, she was, you know, this person was like, "Yeah, you know, my people are being treated really, really badly." Cardi B was like, "Oh, of course, well, you know, understandable from the right place." Then all of her Azerbaijani fans got upset mm. because it's one of those things to where 
they she was picking a side yeah yeah and you know she didn't mean anything by it i think she was generally trying to help but this is a very very complicated issue mm. and she people got mad she had to post an apology and this sort of thing mm. um and she even said you know she i was like, i was just trying to help um but there 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 are lots of instances like that where you know people maybe put their foot in their mouth for having a lack of understanding of the issue or you can see something like what happened with j cole um back in june after george floyd was murdered he didn't say anything and mm. no name came out with a couple of tweets and a song that was calling out some unnamed rapper that most people on twitter assumed was j cole and then he mm -hmm. got really really sensitive about it and whatnot um and I just wonder about that. Like, I, I wonder if sometimes people, I think people look at uh, media figures and assume that they know more than the average person, mm. you know, and have uh, well-informed opinions about what's happening and whatnot. Um, but I do like the way that you put it when you say, well, you know, if, if you are going to be in the public eye or if you are a creator, you need to understand what's happening mm -hmm. because people are, wh whether they should or not, size the point but people are going to expect you yeah to understand what's happening and being open to correction when mm -hmm. you don't know i don't think you need to know everything that's happening in the world like i wasn't aware of what you just told me about the armenian you know i i had no idea about that but just to you know be open to learning about it and be and you know maybe she shouldn't have said anything before she read you know like maybe just don't post until you read about it a little bit. Yeah. And I think that that's, we live in a culture of like just post, post, post. And before I post something, I like to read and make sure that I know what I'm posting about mm -hmm. so that if somebody asks me, I can talk about it. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to give off the idea that I know things that I don't know anything about, you mm -hmm. know? And, and that's been a big um, thing for me this year of like, just read, just do a little bit of reading, not just the headline, read the article, mm -hmm. read the whole article and then read another article, you know, just take some time. I spend all day scrolling like you could read some articles, too. And considering that you're so active in uh, like you know, organizations like musicians, National Musicians for Change, but also the ones that are adjacent, because I know that um, I think like I found that Instagram page or your Instagram page through Dark Matter, mm. if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. um, who's very, very active in the community. And a lot of the time they're adjacent to Gideon's Army. Yeah. Um, a lot of those organizations. But considering that you're, I would say that you're very, very involved in the community, especially mm -hmm. in comparison to the average person. Um, are you more of a fiction reader or do you like read a lot of like history and, um, and policy stuff? I like fiction here and there. Like I read some Mirakami this year, which has been cool. But, um, I have been really digging into like nonfiction and I've been reading Angela Davis. Like that's just been reading her work. I'm just like tip of the iceberg understanding <laughs> what she's talking about, but it's been great to just have um, more context. I've been reading like Sonia Renee Taylor. I don't know if you know her. I'm but, not familiar with her. Um, she's just like a body positive, like radical self love um, advocate. So I've been reading her book um, I'm also in uh, Adrienne Marie Brown's book right now, Pleasure Activism, which um, she's just a black feminist that talks about how pleasure is the key to saving the world. And like that's an interesting concept. And if we could change our thinking about what activism means and make it the most enjoyable and pleasurable experience that we could we could save humanity. Um, and I think that that's such a brilliant and uh, interesting concept. So I've been reading her book. Um, 
Yeah, I've just been trying to have a better understanding of uh, specifically from the perspective of black women. Like, I really do think that, like, they have some of the best ideas. And, like, I'm like, we should be listening to them. We should be letting them lead. We should be. That's why I'm so excited about Marquita Bradshaw. Like, someone like that, like, she she knows. She, she knows firsthand the struggle. And so, therefore, she probably is the closest to the solution. And, um, yeah, I've just been trying to listen and read more about those those subjects of activism and and finding ways to make it um a fun experience absolutely yeah that pleasure activism uh, that pleasure activism book sounds very very interesting I'd yeah like to dig more into that con- how, how far in, along the book have you made it? i'm like a third mm-hmm. into it she, it's more it's so she has some of her writing in there and it's also like a collection so she's got like audrey lord in there and a um, bunch of other uh feminist writers and yeah it's it's a wonderful collection of essays and interviews and she's got some art in there and uh yeah her instagram is also a wonderful place i've just been trying to like fill my feed with more um positive uh radical thinkers and i think to me i always thought like oh activism is about like engaging with the community and like you got to go out and like talk to people and like be and it's like I think I'm starting to understand that the other half of activism is like so personal and private and it's the relationship with yourself. And until you have that radical self love and acceptance of your own body and the space that you take up and the mistakes that you've made, like you're not going to be able to understand other people's bodies and mistakes and, um, past. Um, yeah, I don't know. So what, because social media keeps coming up as a theme here and Obviously, when you make music, it first of all, it's an integral part of most of our lives. Mm-hmm. But I think that goes double so for musicians mm-hmm. and artists and such. Um, what is it about social media that you dislike? And don't get me wrong, there's a lot to dislike, but mm. this is very specific to your life and your experience. I don't like that we can't feel the energy of the intent behind when someone posts. Oh. I don't like that I don't know why someone is posting something. Is it because they feel like they have to show someone something? Is it because they are trying to feel better about themselves because they they genuinely want to share with their community? I don't like that we can't know that through a phone. And you could know that if you were talking to someone. You could feel the energy of why someone is saying something. And I feel like we understand so much about the in-person interaction that is completely taken out of social media interaction. And I hate that. Like I really despise it. And I don't think that it's healthy for humans to, um, primarily interact on social media. And that's what we're doing right now, especially with the pandemic. It's like, you're spending hours a day interacting over the phone and that, that human to human energy that you can feel maybe over the phone, if you're talking on the phone with someone, but definitely in person is completely gone. And the intent, uh, is assumed. And I don't like that. I don't like that I have to assume why someone is posting something. Um, it, yeah, it, it takes out a level of connection that is irreplaceable. Um, what would you say to those people that would that say that social media has made the world more connected than it's ever been? That's kind of like the alternative perspective on it. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I don't know, it's complicated. <laughs> 
It's so complicated because it has it has opened up like all these people that I'm like telling you that I'm reading right now. I found through social media like um, I think it's the step beyond social media. What do you do with the information that you take in from social media Mm -hmm. to legitimately connect? Is it like you just read the post, you like it and you scroll or is it you read the post and you think about what that post really is and then you try to interact in a more meaningful way like if i see somebody come up on my social media and i feel like inspired by what they posted or what they said i text them and i say do you want to get coffee or you want to go for a walk like that it that for me has been the step beyond just interacting over social media and trying to connect in a more meaningful way beyond that yeah i would say very few people take that step yeah I mean, it's 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 easy to feel like you did connect with somebody when you just interact in in that short way. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's a whole Pandora's box of <laughs> like. Have you, have you seen that documentary, uh, The Social Dilemma? Yeah. Okay. What did you think about it? Um, I thought it was wonderful at highlighting the ways that we've been manipulated as a society and the ways that we've been divided and um, drawn further into our bubbles. Um, for me, it's it was a good reminder of my addiction to it. And I think we're all struggling with an addiction to it. Um, and yeah, just further instilling that idea of like, this doesn't replace interacting with somebody. Like I, I connect more with the lady at the grocery store that I talk to for a second than I do with the 30 people that I scroll past on social media. So and also, why are those certain posts coming up? Like, wh- which, and, and that there's meaning behind that. It's not random. It's, you know, a machine, a marketing machine that is trying to get us to spend more time there. Um, I've just been trying to, like, have more autonomy over my, my interaction with those platforms. And it's hard. I'm realizing how difficult it is, especially as a musician, relatively unknown musician who's trying to get their art out there. Um, uh, I've had to monitor myself with it, and I'm still working on it. You spend a lot of time outside, like you, yeah, kind of like an outdoorsy person. Yeah. I feel like so people who spend a lot of time in the outdoors, I feel like, are just better at managing their social media time than other people. Um, Maybe. <laughs> so let me tell you why I say that, because like I for for <laughs> for most of my life, like I have I have periods where I run a lot, and I have periods in my life where I don't do anything, mm-hmm. and. I didn't do much for like, like, like the hardcore lockdown times didn't do anything. And especially like that, probably like the period from where like George Floyd was murdered until maybe a couple of weeks before the debate. Um, I was not feeling great. I was spending a lot of time on social media Mm -hmm. and then I started running three times a week, started getting up earlier and I just got bored with Instagram. It just did not, it didn't, it, it didn't serve the same purpose. And I know that, you know, like, you know, I, I have stuff to market and, you know, shit like that, but it just, I didn't, did not feel compelled mm-hmm. to post or, you know, I didn't really feel like I had anything to say. I just kind of wanted to like, you know, not be bothered by all the noise and whatnot. And that's not to say that like, on you know, obviously this is going to be on, on social media and, and mm-hmm. whatnot, but the conclusion that I came to was that I feel like it probably fucks with your reward systems and your dopamine and stuff like that because like mm. when you get a like or you get a comment or somebody sends you a dm, DM what you're getting is like a little 
hit of dopamine Good every job. time it comes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if you're not getting it elsewhere, that's kind of like the only place your body can get it from. Mm-hmm. Um, especially now when you can't go and see, you can't go see your friends or you can't go and, you know, do the Motown Monday and dance or mm. whatnot. Um, <laughs> yeah. Did you like Motown Monday? Yes. Yeah. That was, those, those were I miss dancing with people. <laughs> I miss, I miss being in a crowded room. I never thought I'd say it, but I really miss it. I could tell you. I mean, I, I think I've had my going out days for the most part. Um, like alcohol just hits me in a way that it did not anymore. The next day is so painful and I will lose an entire day. Sure. Um, I think I could go and just not drink though. Yeah. I think I just go not drink and dance and be happy at this point. I'm like, I don't even need mm-hmm. drugs. I just go and have a good time. You know, it's true. When do you think, like, when do you think shows are going to happen again? <laughs> well, we're doing like an outdoor show this weekend with Katie at oh, the basement. Word. Um, but by the time this airs, that'll already have happened. Um, we'll see into, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. No, it's okay. I think they're sold out because it's socially distanced and it's in the basement parking lot. I think in the spring we'll see distant shows outside. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if we'll see a packed venue until like 2022, if I'm being realistic, like Oof. I don't see like full capacity venues coming back for at least another year. You think people will be hungrier for it once it comes back? Yeah, I yeah. I hope so. I mean, I I am, but I also have this feeling of like I don't want to go unless I know it's safe, mm-hmm. which I think is going to be um, an echo of a feeling that follows us for the next I don't know five to ten years. I mean, I think I think that now we're living in a time when oh pandemics are a thing; it's mm-hmm. possible, and I think we're going to be worried about the next one. You know? Yeah. 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 Because I think it's just going to be a part of our day to day now of like that's possible yeah and i i I guess you know to that point i guess it really always has been we just Mm -hmm. never woke up to it until it happened yeah and now that it's here and now that we know did you and and i know there are a lot of conspiracy theorists who you know they think it was 5g or you know some people say that it came out of a laboratory but have you read much about like the 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 scientific uh, description on how exactly covid became a thing came to the united states yeah wasn't it like maybe from a bat to a pig and then a, or like a, a chicken or something and then a chicken to a human at a meat market. It, it, yes. Yeah. It, so it was like a transfer from animals to, you know, a raw meat market in China. Right. Right. Yeah. The, 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 the wet market is, is the key part there because mm-hmm. you have so many different species of animal who are in really, really close proximity and, you know, there's waste and that sort of thing. Right. Um, it makes them particularly prone to, strange virus mutations right. and whatnot. Um, but because there's so many of them in China, because um, it, was, it was the same thing with SARS. Right. Um, but apparently that is a very specific risk for new flu strains and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, you know, it's, you know, it's in, you know in, in environmental issues contribute to the likelihood of pandemics. Yes. Um, That's why we should all cut back on eating meat. Yeah. Now, are you vegetarian? I try to keep vegetarian. Uh, you know, our neighbors... Uh, they have chickens, so, like, I'll eat the eggs that we get from the neighbors. And, like, you know, we've gone to the farmer's market and gotten wings and grilled them. Like, I'm I'm very mindful of the meat that I intake. I don't like eating processed stuff from, you know, wherever, mm-hmm. a fast food restaurant, you know. Mm-hmm. I try to limit my intake, and I feel like that's what everyone should do. Like, you know, it, it's not you have to be vegan now, right. you know, and that, and that goes back to this idea of like one or the other, like we're such a black and white, you know, all or nothing society. It's like, no, maybe it's just like 
don't eat meat every single day mm-hmm. or don't meet it for eat it for every single meal. And like my family's like Italian American, like we had meat with everything. It was like bacon or pork roll <laughs> on the eggs, turkey or chicken for lunch and then steak or meatballs for dinner. Like that, I, that's not healthy. Mm-hmm. It's not good for the environment. It's not good for you. It's not good for the animals. Like it's, it's not good all around. And I feel like if we could just come to a, like a global understanding of that and mm-hmm. then just cut back, it would help. It, it sucks because for so many people, um, like, you know, bad eating habits are incentivized. Yes. Like, if you go up Gallatin, <sighs> there are fast food restaurants everywhere. <laughs> but there's one that I'm thinking of in specific, like, in particular is the Wendy's. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going somewhere. I can't remember where I was going. I passed Wendy's and, like, the line was just like, whoosh. Mm-hmm. And this was this was like probably like I don't know probably five thirty on a weekday afternoon and you know they've got they've got like the four for four deal and you can get chicken nuggets and you can get a, a bacon cheeseburger and this that and mm-hmm. the other and it's cheap yeah and it's it 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 it's quick mm-hmm. and for people that have kids and they maybe work two or three jobs it's really really hard for them to go to the grocery store get a bunch of Whole Foods have time to cook yeah. that it's you know. Um, that it, that that's it's not just people's eating habits. It's mm-hmm. people are literally forced into yeah. this system to where they have very few time, cost, and health efficient options for them to eat. Mm. Um, and yeah, that and just you know that's like the intersectionality of all these things that we're talking about. They're all affecting each other. Um, you know, if we raise minimum wage and these people didn't have to have three jobs. Mm. Maybe there would be a different option. You're right. You know, it's like if we if we just started making things a little bit easier for people, and um, I think that the world would just be such a better place. It all seems so simple, doesn't it? It <laughs> does, but it's not. It's not, and it and it is like a convenience thing. You know, it's like companies like Amazon is like they they just like killed small business because it's people and social media plays into it it's like immediacy i want it right now mm-hmm. i want it cheap i want it fast i want it you know people don't have patience and i've had to examine that within myself like we were ordering a lot of stuff from amazon before the pandemic hit and then i started thinking about like can this wait like can i just like can this wait a week can i go get this like at the local place like um and it is like a mindfulness and, and I have the privilege to be able to do that. And I, I know what you're saying of like a lot of people don't have that. And yeah. I think it's more of like creating that space for people to have the opportunity to be mindful about the way they spend their money. Mm-hmm. But if they don't have money, they can't. Yeah, no, it, it's one of those things where it's like, and I, I didn't think that you were castigating sure. anybody. It's just sure. like, I know that there are a lot of you know people who are like militantly vegan, yeah. for example, yeah. right, who castigate people for their eating choices. Mm. Um, a lot of people have very little choice. I mean, yeah. like in in the most aggressive way, I guess everybody has a choice. Yeah. But is it a one that, that's really conducive to the realities of their life? Yeah. For a lot of people, it's not. Yeah. And it's not just people who are just lazy and people just love cheeseburgers that much. It's, right. it's kind of like, what are you, what, what, what you going to do? What are you going to do? Yeah. Man, we need to get back to gardening. Do you garden? I do garden. Oh, okay. Tell me about gardening. That has, I mean, the last three years I've had a garden and it's been 
the most wonderful way to realize how easy it is to make your own food, like grow your own food and eat your own food. And I think that if we could just like bring that to more people, you know, like teach people how to garden, it's not that hard. It's not that expensive. You know, it's a little bit of time every day watering, but, um, there is so much power in growing your own food. And I, I see that as like a way forward. Um, yeah. What kind of food do you grow? I grew a bunch of kale. I had tomatoes, um, jalapenos. I okay. made jalapeno poppers, which was awesome. Apparently peppers are really easy to grow. Yeah, they are. They're not hard. I had like four different jalapeno pepper trees. It was awesome. He grows cayenne peppers, mm. which was weird. I didn't know that they came out green. They're green mm -hmm. before they're red. Yeah. But he'll give them to me and I'll make them with salmon and that sort of thing. Yeah. How do you prepare your kale? Because I like right now I have like a bunch of spinach and collards yeah. and kale in yeah. the refrigerator. I'm always trying to figure out ways to like make them interesting. So I will pull the leaves off of the, the stem of the kale, wash it all, and then I um, put it in a big bowl and I like put olive oil over it and then I put my hands in there and I massage it mm -hmm. and then I'll leave that in my fridge so it's like ready to go if I want to make a salad just throw it in there and it's pre-massaged so it's like it already has like a looseness to it and it's not like crunchy you can also just throw that in the oven make kale chips mm -hmm. or you could mm -hmm. throw it on the stove top and like put that on top of rice or you could put it in the blender blend it up and make kale pesto kale pesto that sounds like it would be pretty yeah. good. Yeah. It sounds like, yeah, you've gotten real creative with it. Yeah. It's been really fun for me. And it's like, you know, it's not expensive. Mm -mm. Like, it's cheap. Like, you buy kale seeds, like $2, and you plant, you know, you can have kale for the whole summer. Okay. It's like. Sweet. Yeah. Uh, aren't there a lot of municipalities that are very, very hard on, like, gardening codes and restrictions on, like, where you can and can't have a garden? I think that's true. And, of course, of anything, it's true, like, when you're in like a probably like Germantown or North Nashville, it's like maybe you can't in that, um, you know, that space in front of your house that's like technically public, but you own it. Mm -hmm. Is it that space between like the sidewalk and the street where like that would be the only place for someone like in an apartment to have a garden? Um, and yeah, I do think that that's like restricted. I wouldn't be surprised if it's like impossible if you live in an apartment to have a garden. Mm -hmm. Um I don't know. You have more community gardens. Like at, in my hometown, my grandpa is like in charge of overseeing the community garden. And it's like just in the park. So like maybe in two rivers, we had like a little space where we like put a bunch of garden beds or like in Shelby, you know, there's space for that. Um, I'm talking about these things and maybe they exist. I don't know. I haven't looked into it much, but that would be such a cool way to like get people engaged in growing their own food. Oh, absolutely. It would be and just like, you know, going back to that whole church thing, it would be, you know, a good community, community. thing too, you know, and just make people feel like they're a part of something. Cause I feel like that's a lot, that's something that a lot of people are really craving right now. Yeah. Um, and there are just fewer and fewer ways for them to do it. It's not to say that they don't exist, Yeah. but you, you like really got to look or you got to make it yourself. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Access. Um, what was I going to say? I had a thought about something you said before you, you were talking about um, how you started running instead of like going on social media all the time. Mm. And it's like, it feels like the difference between being in nature and like watching TV or watching social media is like the choice between like fresh fruit and candy. Oh, Oh, absolutely. Like they have yeah. the same like sweetness and like the same, like, Oh, this is so delicious. Mm. But like the long term effects of it are 
so drastically different and one just takes a little bit more effort like you go pick the fruit or go buy the fruit you know yeah i don't know i just thought about that no you're 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 absolutely right and it's weird um because i don't know like you you the the, the doing something that's a little difficult mm-hmm. on a consistent base really has a way of enriching your life yeah um but I don't know if it's like a, a biological thing to where like, you know, the human body is like trying to be efficient so it doesn't like friction. Mm. Um, so I don't know if that's why we lean towards it or I don't know if it's more, maybe it's more culturally enforced mm. than, oh, you know, save time and, you know, right. you know, treat yourself and this sort of thing. And you need to take care of yourself. Yeah. But, and, and, and this is going to sound weird, but part of taking care of yourself is doing things that are difficult. Yeah. Um, like when I... <laughs> Yeah, we're a bunch of little babies. <laughs> we we yeah, in, in in a lot of ways we are. Yeah, we don't um, like being uncomfortable. We don't, and I, th- I think that some of that has got to be biological. Like, totally, you know, yeah. Um, but when when I started running this summer, and you know, I've I've ran run before in my life and whatnot, mm-hmm. but it had been a long time, and like I was like winded after a mile and a half, and I ran five miles this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and they sucked. <laughs> they sucked, but you know, you you feel better for the rest of the day, and then you also just get the sense of accomplishment. We're just like, yeah, yeah like, I did I just it. Did that? Totally. You see what I'm um, it's worth it. Yeah, and absolutely. And what's crazy is that you you can apply that same mindset to anything that you do. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, like I love sitting here and talking to people about these things. I hate post producing the video. It is literally one of my least favorite things to do. I hate it so much. Um, but I have to do it. Um, you know, it's, I guess, you know, kind of the price to do the fun stuff and whatnot. Yeah. And I'm sure it's the same way when you make, like, I'm sure that there's something that like something musically related that, that there you would just like rather not do. Yeah. I mean, the mixing process is like mm-hmm. such a pain. I mean, you're think you're like listening to these minute details and you're trying to decide like, what is the final thing going to sound like? And I mean, that process was pretty tedious. That was like my probably my least favorite process of the record was the mixing part was just going back and forth on these notes and trying to make decisions there. But I knew that like, okay, this is going to serve a, you know, bigger picture. And I'm just I'm going to do this. And, you know, I didn't like the marketing part either. (laughs) Like, but, you know, I'm going to do it like I'm going to I'm going to do these things to serve the bigger picture. And I'm going to change my perspective on it instead of just complaining and acting like, Oh, this is awful. I don't I shouldn't have to do this. It's like how do I look at this in a positive way? What's crazy about making music is that like when you when you are a musician, making music is maybe like 30 to 40% of it. Yeah, it's such a small part. Yeah, and there's just like this all this other stuff that you have to do. And for the most part you don't mind it cuz you know that it's like working towards like the realization of like your goal. Like mm-hmm. I'm sure that it must have been amazing once this album was like finally done and mm-hmm. finally like up because it was such a long process from Yeah some of these songs that you wrote years ago to the drafts and, you know, the, yeah. the arrangement changes and then rehearsing it with the band and then however many takes you did for the basics and then yeah. uh, the mixing and then the mastering and then getting it uploaded to Spotify or DistroKid mm-hmm. or whatever you use. Um, and then you're just like, this is finally done. Yeah. And it's going to be there forever now. Exactly. Um, do you like Spotify? As a... <laughs> Uh, as a platform for listening for music like as a user i think it's like super user friendly i love the the playlists i love the way it's set up like it feels very user friendly um i don't like spotify like 
you can't be a creator or like really like love musicians and love Spotify truly like deep down under that like convenience of the app I'm like I don't get shit from this platform like yeah. I I mean I don't I don't make money from streams mm-hmm. period and like I don't have many, many streams on the album but um I should have a little bit of money you know it's like I put this thing out people are listening to it and consuming it but I'm not seeing a return um that to me means that something's wrong and like everything else in our system it's like I think that we just don't um value art in the same way that we did like it's 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 so accessible now and Spotify has just made it so easy and all these other streaming platforms made it so so easy to just access it and people take that for granted you know um my hope is that um something else comes out that uh takes over and is 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 more fair and helpful towards musicians have have you ever imagined what that looks like um i think patreon is close patreon's a good example patreon feels like it's just uh the artist has more control over who is watching and who is consuming instead of just a free-for-all of like anyone can get it for super cheap or for free um it you know i think it goes back to like being mindful and like the consumer uh, right now is not being challenged to be mindful. They're just anything all the time, whenever they want it. And I think that, uh, I don't know, Patreon feels like a place where somebody has to actively say, I want to support this person. Here's a little bit of money for the content. I believe it and I support it. I support it. And um, yeah, I don't know. Something like Patreon. It's weird. You would think that by now more musicians would have embraced Patreon. Yeah, um, I think it's hard to get people to switch over when the the op- you know when the music is so readily available, and there's other artists that are putting their shit out there for free. Well, yeah, I, I see it from that perspective. You know, y- you could use them in tandem. Like mm. there are plenty of YouTubers, for example, who use they they, they upload their videos for. Um, uh, the, 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 to YouTube, but like for example, there's a YouTuber that I really like called Second Thought, who like mm. he made a lot of like futurist content about space and science and these sorts of things. But as of late, he's made a lot of like left wing socialist content and whatnot. Mm. And he gets he gets demonetized for it um, on YouTube. Oh so he's like, yeah, YouTube keeps uh, demonetizing my videos, <laughs> so uh, follow my Patreon. Um, it very well could be, for you know, for example, you know, you could have your music on Spotify, but you could also offer, you know, your fans or your uh, Instagram followers, what have you, exclusive content that's only on Patreon. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. Um, and I'm sure that there are musicians out there doing it, but there's nobody that I know personally that, that that's made that switch, at least not that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, you would think that that would be happening more, and it, it probably will in the coming years, mm-hmm. um, but... I remember when we were at the lake, you said something that for most of your life, you had grown up thinking that all you could be was a musician, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I think that for a lot of musicians, it's hard for them to, to, to imagine themselves outside of that particular realm of creation. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Totally. Like what you do is inherently creative. You can also get creative on how you make your living, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah, totally. Because um, like even when I listen to your record, like, you know, you... You, your, your personality shines through it mm. and really like, you know, there's songs by plenty of artists that I like, but I'm only like adjacently connected to like, but when you have fans 
they maybe found your music, but it's you that they have really invested in, mm. you know, whether that be through concerts, tickets or T-shirts or posters. Sure. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, but Patreon makes that easy for people. Well, maybe I should go start a Patreon. You should. And I was not necessarily trying to push you in that direction. Do you work for Patreon? No, <laughs> no this isn't this isn't a trap or a, a shameless <laughs> plug. Um, it's just weird. Like I, Spotify is not a good guy. Spotify is not on our team. No. Uh, let me start by saying that Spotify is not acting in the best interest of people that make music, and I don't think that it ever will. But Spotify is not all not necessarily uh, just an inherently losing situation for musicians either. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a double-edged sword. Like it's like Instagram, you know. It's like yeah. the same thing. It's like you can reach so many people through that. Like I've definitely had people discover me through Spotify mm-hmm. that have then transferred over and followed me on Instagram. Right. I don't think I got any money from those people though. Right. Well, and <laughs> you know. So it is like sort of channeling them to some some sort of platform where there is, you know, you know, my, my work is valued. Right. I think that we're similar in this respect, that mm-hmm. I'm, I'm also very, very optimistic and I like I believe in what's possible. Mm-hmm. Spotify, and this is going to sound weird, Spotify makes it possible. And I know it doesn't feel like that list for you because it doesn't feel like it for me either yeah. right now. Yeah. Spotify makes it possible for musicians to be able to make a living off of their music solely. Now l- listen to this entire thought because they're not doing it because they love you and, 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 and they think you deserve it. Their business model is totally separate than yours. Mm-hmm. Okay. But if you're somebody like Russ, I don't know if you're Russ for if, if you know who Russ is. Mm-hmm. So he, R- Russ is a rapper to make a long story short. And this is probably like the third or fourth time that I've told the story on this podcast, mm-hmm. but he is a rapper who for, Maybe I don't know. Eighteen months for two years, he dropped a song a month, which for the, for the kind of music that we make is literally unheard of. Mm-hmm. But like the volume isn't the point. The the point is that it's consistent. Mm-hmm. Like you've got an album out, and you're about to put out two more singles sometime before this year is over, mm-hmm. right? Um, but that consistent output feeds the Instagram algorithm and it pushes your music out to more people. Mm. And even before you get fans who are willing to invest in your shows or your live streams or your merch, you get to a point where that, that can be self-sustaining. I mean, there, there, there are plenty of people who make, you know, 400 bucks a month from their streams, which ain't mm-hmm. a whole lot of money. Mm-hmm. But like, I think there's like $12 sitting in my DistroKid account right now. Sure. You know, like $400 a month that, you know, that, that that's something. Yeah, yeah, that's something. And then when you factor in that it's not going away, your music's still going to be there 3 years yeah, from now. Yeah. That's true. You know, you, you 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 can start to see how it can work on your, it's like it's like buying online real estate. Totally. Um You're right, and I don't think I've been putting out music long enough to feel that yet. That is also true. Um But I but I believe you. Well, thank you. And I can't I wait for just, that day. I, I, I don't like it's it's one of those things and you like you don't see this like for like the people who make like the most poppy music mm-hmm. there is or people who make like EDM. Mm-hmm. They've kind of already bought into this, but those are art forms to where what is commercial takes precedent over everything else. Mm. Um, and there's always friction between people that make music like that and people who make music that is, you know, they're they're they're, they're giving you a portion of themselves. Mm-hmm. And as a result, 
like if you're somebody that's like really really artistically oriented and you see how flippantly the world treats your creation mm. there's like this de- this degree of cynicism that develops mm. right and like i'm just always trying to actively encourage people not to fall into that mm-hmm. because even if you make you know some like i don't know progressive celtic music or something like that you can find an audience for it and yeah. you like the, the, the internet makes it possible for you to make your living out of it yeah now is it going to be easy? No, it's going to take it'll, it'll takes it'll take some time, it'll take some yeah. effort and it's going to take you being consistent, but it's possible. Yeah. Um and it's possible in a way that it wasn't 20 years ago because at that point everybody somebody controlled distribution and if they didn't like it, they made sure that nobody heard it. Right. Um that gives me a lot of hope for my record cuz I believe that it's a good record mm-hmm. and I believe that it it, when people will actually take the time to listen to it, they'll believe it's a good record too. And so it's like, it's just a slow burn. Like yeah. just, you know, and, and it's going to be there forever. Like you said, like people will discover it over time and it will, it will stand the test of time, you know, unlike some other music that maybe is not yeah. as thought out and just sort of put out there and has, has instant success. You know, the ultimate quote is that old music is new music to people who haven't heard it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, like you know, Fleetwood Mac is Fleetwood Mac, but like I was reading this thing, they were, mm. they were talking about the dude on the skateboard with the yeah, yeah, <laughs> the, uh, the ocean juice. spray. Yeah. Um, you know, like they they got thirty six million streams of that song in two weeks because of that video. Like and like we Crazy. all know that song; it plays yeah, in yeah, every yeah. bar all the but time. But it's back now. Yeah, but it, it it's back. And I'm sure there are people that had never heard it before. That is also true. Yeah, young people on TikTok are like, "What is this what, song?" Oh, this is, uh, yeah, you know, it's yeah. it, 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 it's crazy, and you yeah, know, for me, that's a lot of hope. Not even for myself, but also just for all the people that are making awesome music. That, yeah, you know, if this been twenty years ago, just never would have got heard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but like like you said, like when 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 it, when you're early in the game, you know, it, you you're not going to see fruits like overnight. That's yeah, not how it works. Yeah. Well, and I think it's been important for me not to focus on that, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the external validation and the streams and the numbers and the, all that stuff. And I've been um, working very hard to not keep my eyes on that and rather keep my eyes on what's happening around me, who's making cool shit that inspires me, what can I be involved in, um, present. Yeah. present with what's happening and not so concerned with what happened yesterday or where am I going to be tomorrow? It's like, all I have is right this second. I'm here with you. Mm. That's, that's great. You know, that's good. That's good enough. I don't need to be striving for something yeah. that's outside of my reach or something that I haven't gotten yet. Cause it's, that's a never ending game. Mm. That's a never ending game of wanting what you don't have and wishing you had more. And I don't want to live my life like that, you know? Yeah. Excuse me, <clears throat> and you you don't seem like you're you know like super worried about all the metrics and that sort of thing. You seem like you you know you're very grounded and genu- genuinely like what you do. Yeah, like I do, but you know it's it, that stuff is. I mean, social media is built for me to want more followers. That is true, and I feel that. Like I feel that when I'm on there, I'm like, I hope you know somebody likes this or somebody discovers this, and um, that thought is definitely there. But I try not to, you know, ground myself in that thought. I feel it. I just, you know, that that whole diatribe was just like, I just, mm-hmm. I, I, I want people not to be so hopeless about how the music industry is changing. Mm-hmm. And like I said, at some point we're going to have to, we're going to do something about Spotify. Yeah. But 
you know, in the here and now, you know, in the present as we're talking about, you know, you just have to do your best to make it work for you and mm-hmm. not, you know, not, not, not worry about you in relation to it. Yeah. Just like, just, just, you know, just worry about you and, and, and yeah, it, it, it's, it's the tool that you have right now. Exactly. But, um, anyway, I know that you wanted to remind people to vote, so I'm going to let you give your, um, <laughs> if you have not voted yet, go vote it matters i'm gonna make sure that part gets out yeah we're two weeks out like literally i think it's 15 days today Um, it matters i'm so i'm so frustrated by people that think it doesn't matter or think that it's just a losing game not true it's not true if everyone participated in the democracy we could have a much better world i think much better much better place um and they intentionally, the, the system intentionally makes it difficult for people to vote and suppresses voters because it matters. Mm. And they wouldn't do that if it didn't, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, go vote. Go vote. You heard her. Um, From Blue to Gold um, is out everywhere um, right now. You know, please go listen to it. It's, it's, it's really nice to go on walks, too. Mm-hmm. It's really nice to make breakfast, too. I was listening to it when I was making my breakfast this morning. Um, had a really good time listening to it. I had a very good time speaking with you. Thank you for opening up about the record and just, you know, coming and just have some general conversation and whatnot. And whatnot. Um, you're going to have to come back and do this again. I would love to. I appreciate the thoughtful questions and the great conversation. And, um, yeah, this made my whole day. So right. thanks. Well, it's been a pleasure. And uh, I will see you guys for the next episode. <laughs>